We talked about kings, wars, alliances and European history. Naturally, our heads were spinning after this intensive historical input in the last episode. So I want to take it a little easier this time, especially since this episode comes out on Christmas 2023. And to be honest, I could do with something a little gentler myself after all. December is very stressful for me and I'm sure for you too, as it is every year. We return to the realm of legends and myths about Cologne, as you will soon realize, as is almost always the case, there is some truth in everything. What is this about this time? Mainly about a poor boy who wants to embark on a spiritual career and has a truly mystical experience near the Heumarkt Square with an apple in his hand. And we learn how a fat, tasty roast, how appropriate for the Christmas season, causes a lot of trouble between a mayor and a priest. Dive with me into a little medieval fairy tale around the year 1200, directly after the intro. Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the history of the city of Cologne that is over 2000 years old, but until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past and hence, therefore, it can be seen as kind of European microcosm. In this podcast you can listen as the city grows from the Romans up until our present time. As already mentioned in the intro, after densely packed episodes full of information, this time we dive into the realm of legends again. Our first story takes place near the Heumarkt Square. The large central square near the banks of the Rhine is one of the major transshipment points for the flow of goods coming to or through Cologne via the Rhine. Its ideal location in the middle of Europe with trade flows crossing from all directions makes the city enormously rich. You will have noticed for yourself how the city's merchant class gained enormous political importance as a result. But of course the wealth did not reach everyone, especially those whom life had not blessed so well with health or even luck, or those who could only work as much as their hands could manage. The young Hermann Josef was born into just such a family. His parents diligently ran a cobbler's business, a laborious job that did not bring any wealth. Hermann Josef was born in modest circumstances around 1150 in Stephansstraße Street, where he spent the first years of his life. A small and short street directly in the shadow of St. Mary in the capital, a convent for women. Stephansstraße still exists today and even if the buildings are no longer the same as they were 800 years ago due to war damage, the narrow alley and the basilica of St. Mary in the capital still give you a medieval feel when you walk the street. The social cohesion in Stephansstraße street among the rather poor inhabitants was particularly pronounced. People helped each other as much as they could. Young Hermann Josef was a real favorite among the inhabitants of the street. The boy had an extremely good heart and was always well-behaved and friendly, even if he didn't necessarily prefer to be the center of attention. So he was also modest, actually a little atypical for a child of that age. His playmates thought so too. When they played hide-and-seek, Hermann Josef always climbed into the top of a tree and began to escape into a lively fantasy world. He forgot that he was actually playing hide-and-seek. He preferred to look at the nearby monastery church of St. Mary in the capital. 
The parents, like hopefully most parents, thought that little Hermann Josef would be better off one day. So they worked all the harder to enable their son to pursue a spiritual career and to pay for school to prepare him for this. Of course, social advancement was more difficult back then than it is today, but was not impossible as it often claimed. A career as a priest could open many doors for Hermann Josef. Especially when the bells rang and Hermann Josef was once again sitting in the tree, he could hear them very clearly and directly, which further stimulated his imagination. He often went into the church whenever he could and marveled at the stone splendor of the building, the light streaming in through the narrow windows or the shimmering light of the candles. For him, however, this place was more than just a stone church interior. In his imagination, the walls became an open blue sky, the stone pillars of the church were transformed into trees and the songs of angels could be heard in the silence of the nave. And so it was that little Hermann Josef went back into St. Mary in the capital and indulged in his colorful imagination one day. As he made his way further back towards the choir room in the North Conch, he spotted a small but artistic wooden statue of the Virgin Mary. As a layman, Hermann Josef couldn't go any further in the church. This is where the choir screen was located, a partition wall that separated the area from the nuns from the public area. It was here that he saw the image of St. Mary. How could he have missed it until now? It depicted St. Mary holding a child in her arms, probably dating around from 1180. It is in Romanesque design. Just like the rest of the church building. The way the Virgin Mary is depicted is based on a Byzantine model from that time, the Badonna Eloisa. In other words, the compassionate Mary, who lovingly holds her son Jesus with his little head against her own, instead of simply having the boy sitting on her lap, as in other depictions. Despite the direct proximity to her offspring, Mary does not look quite so happy. This is because it is also part of this depiction that she is aware of the suffering that Jesus will one day endure as an adult on the cross, and that she will witness it. The baby Jesus in her arms, however, is refreshed and happy, because he's just a little boy. Hermann Josef is touched by this scene and is delighted to see the smiling child in his mother's arms. Then he remembers that he had still an apple in his pocket that he had picked from one of his excursions up to the top of an apple tree while playing hide-and-seek. He took the apple in his hand and offered it directly to St. Mary. Please said Hermann Josef, for the dear baby Jesus. But nothing happened. Of course, we would say now it's just a wooden statue, but for Hermann Josef it was more than that. Tears welled up in his eyes, and he was almost pleading now, as he repeatedly said, Please! And he held out the apple to her again. And lo and behold, what was actually unbelievable, Mary leaned forward and grabbed the apple. Thank you, Hermann. You're a good boy. And she passed the apple to her child, who ate it with relish. While the Messiah ate the apple, Mary turned to Hermann Josef again. Since you've gone to all this trouble, would you like to play with my son for a while? Hermann Josef let out a cry of joy and naturally agreed. Mary then stretched out her hand again, and Hermann Josef took it. She pulled him up 
onto her pedestal with ease and both children laughed together, singing and running. It seemed as if the candles in the church were glowing even brighter than usual and a pleasant smell spread. St. Mary couldn't stop herself and laughed at the general merriment. After a while, Hermann Josef thought it was time to leave the two of them to themselves again and he jumped down from the platform onto the church floor. When he looked back, Mary and the baby Jesus were back in the familiar positions and not moving. Had he just imagined it? Had, did he have a fever, perhaps, that played a stupid trick on him? But then Hermann Josef heard a loud, That was incredible, behind him. A lady from the monastery had been standing nearby and must have been watching the whole scene. Hermann Josef is said to have been in conversation with St. Mary several times afterwards. Despite their hard work, his parents could not always afford the school fees. Mary then pointed to a slab in the church and, oh wonder, there was a coin there that covered the cost of the school fees. This was the legend of little Hermann Josef, who played with the baby Jesus in St. Mary in the capital. More on this after a short break. See all this as nonsense, then so be it. In any case, I think it's a beautiful story, which is no longer quite as well known to the public in Cologne as it used to be in the 19th century, for example, it was still well known, because of course there's some truth to this legend. Little Hermann Josef really did exist. Born around 1150 in Cologne into a poor family, he became a highly respected premonstratensian monk and mystic during his lifetime. We'll come back to what a premonstratensian is in another episode. But yes, mysticism is something that today's church, in my eyes, no longer practices so openly, at least not the Catholic church. I think some Protestant free churches still do it. But in the time of Hermann Josef, this was still really a thing. At the same time, a little upstream on the Rhine, Hildegard von Bingen, who is still well known today, was also active as a mystic. What is mysticism? What is said to have happened to Hermann Josef, among others, for example? The becoming one with God or the saints, like Mary in this case. At the age of 12, after his legendary encounter with St. Mary, Hermann Josef entered the Steinfeld Monastery and became a canon there. In the meantime, he spent a year studying in Friesland before returning to Steinfeld again, where he was ordained a priest. Hermann Josef worked there his entire life. He He appeared as a preacher, but also as a poet and lyricist. What were the songs or poems about? About Mary and Jesus, of course, but also about St. Ursula. Hermann Josef died on April 7th, 1241, and thus probably reached an age of over 80, if not 90. His tomb in Steinfeld Monastery still exists today and was magnificently decorated in Baroque style, especially from the 18th century onwards. Throughout these centuries, people have regarded him as an apple saint, because of the legend, and thus in Rhenish dialect called him the Appeljub. Steinfeld Monastery still exists today and is truly impressive to behold. Situated in the middle of the Eiffel, it sits majestically on a hill. It is one of the best preserved and most complete monastery complexes in Germany. I've been there several times myself and I 
can only recommend the monastery store where they produce their own monastery beer. I even have several bottles of it at home at the moment, and disclaimer, this is not an advertisement, just my personal opinion. Miracle reports about him were already circulating during his lifetime, especially about healings of illnesses or impairments, the blind can see again, toothache disappears, or serious illnesses are healed by him through prayer. And if you go back to St. Mary in the Capitol in Cologne at Heumarkt Square today, you can still see the wooden figure of St. Mary with the baby Jesus on her arm. Even after more than 800 years, there are still apples that believers have placed there. But I don't know whether they were also allowed to play with the baby Jesus. I probably have to go there myself one day with an apple in my hand, and then I will pop. I will report back to you. Interestingly, Hermann Josef was only canonized by the Catholic Church in 1958. However, centuries of veneration had already preceded this. Hermann Josef's veneration also reached a new peak in the 19th century. In 1894, the Cologne Beautification Association built the Hermann Josef Fountain on Weidmarkt Square, not far from where Hermann Josef lived as a child and not far away from the Church of St. Mary in the capital. On an octagonal pillar, you can see the key scene from the legend where the boy gives the apple to the Virgin Mary and the baby Jesus. But other details are also interesting here. There are different figures on each corner of the fountain, two boys, each with an animal, representing the four elements. The fish for water, the dog for earth, the crab for fire, okay, and the eagle for air. Two dolphins serve as gargoyles from which the water gushes. When the fountain was built at the end of the 19th century, it was intended to serve as a running fountain, in other words, as a water source for the people of the Weidmarkt district. However, after the Second World War and the repair of damage, it is now just an ornamental fountain, like almost all fountains in Cologne today. The fountain itself was lovingly restored in 2020. That's quite something to behold, only its location is somehow sad. When it was inaugurated in 1894, it was enthroned in the middle of a beautiful square, the Weidmarkt Square. Due to the rerouting and widening of streets and the creation of a residence parking lot with a bus stop next to it, it is no longer as conspicuous as it once was in historical photos. Nowadays it looks as if it had simply been pushed into a corner like a rather now disruptive object of the post-war urban order. Let's listen to another story, right after a short break. In keeping with the Christmas season, this time it's about a roast. How fitting that we stopped off at Weidmarkt Square before the break the former Oversburg, the southern suburb that was incorporated into the city in 1106, because that's where our next story begins. The former monastery of St. George, founded by Archbishop Anna II, still stands at the southern end of Weidmarkt Square. And as already discussed in another episode in medieval Cologne, there was often a parish church right next to it. A church where normal, non-clergy people also went to celebrate a church service. And so Cologne's cityscape was dotted with its dual church billing system. 
This was also the case with St. George's. Today it stands alone, but until the beginning of the 19th century, it had the parish church of St. Jacob as its direct neighbor. A corridor even connected the two buildings, which is still the entrance to St. George's today. In the course of secularization, first the French and then from 1815 the Prussians thought that there were too many churches in Cologne crammed in that small urban area. The space could be put to better use. The parish church of St. Jacob was therefore demolished in 1825 and the abolished monastery of St. George was then converted into a parish church. But here in the period around 1200, St. Jacob naturally stood for many centuries. The priest of St. Jacob's at that time was a man called Everhard. Unlike many other priests of his time, he was modest in every way. Everything of value that he received through these services in his parish or donations, he gave back to those whom life had not so favored. So above all to the poor, the sick, and the lonely elderly. Didn't Jesus already say in a sermon on the mount, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so Everhard saw himself as having a duty to precisely have these people taken care of. He himself lived modestly, ate only the bare minimum and clothed himself with the bare necessities. And not even that, if he saw someone freezing in winter, he gave them his coat so, the, so that he himself was cold from then on. Now, you might think that this made Everhard popular with everyone, and don't get me wrong, he was very popular with the people. But of course, there were also those who felt like Everhard was holding a mirror up to their faces, those who were not at all charitable, but even greedy, even though they had enough money. Like a mayor of the Richardsäche, who was in office at that time, he also lived in Oversburg and didn't begrudge Everhard anything. As if this priest is really such a good-hearted person, he's just pretending like everyone else in the church, he said to himself and his drinking buddies almost every evening, if only he could prove the hypocrisy of the priest of St. Jacob's. And so it happened, that one day the mayor's housekeeper set off to buy a roast from the butcher. When she arrived at the butcher's, he only had one large and magnificent piece left. The price asked for it was extremely expensive. Unsure, the housekeeper returned to the mayor's house to ask him if the price was okay. Irascible. The mayor jumped up and attacked his housekeeper. Now buy that piece of meat at last. Are you out of your mind? What if someone else buys it in the meantime? I have a dinner party with my friends tonight. I need that roast. The housekeeper hurried back to the butcher, but disaster had struck. The roast meat had already been sold. She asked the shopkeeper who could afford such an expensive piece of roast meat, and when she heard the answer, she could hardly believe it. The buyer was the priest of St. Jacob's. When the mayor heard this, his anger evaporated. He jumped for joy. At last he had proved that the hypocritical priest was not as pious and charitable as he always pretended to be. He immediately rounded up other members of the Richardsäche and hurried to the priest's house that evening. The mayor of the Richardsäche banged harshly on the priest's front door in the evening. The parish secretary opened the door in astonishment. We want to see the priest, said the mayor, and without expecting an answer, pushed his way through the door into the priest's sparsely furnished home. Everhard had heard the commotion at the door and asked his uninvited guests what all the fuss was about. Dear Everhard, I was just in the neighborhood and I thought you could give 
me and my friends some hospitality. Surely you don't mind? Everhard was naturally not at all pleased about the situation, but he recollected his inner attitude, breathed in and out calmly, and simply said, But of course, follow me. Everhard, the mayor, and his colleagues entered a small room with a small table in the middle, which had certainly seen better days. When they all had sat down around it, or rather squeezed around it, the parish secretary had even had to borrow chairs from neighbors because of the many uninvited guests, Everhard instructed the parish secretary to bring the dinner. But, dear priest, she replied, that's not appropriate, we hardly have anything. Yes, it is. Please bring me my dinner. I want to share it with my guests, said Everhard. After just a moment, she returned with a simple portion of bread, a jug of water, and a small pot of thin vegetable soup. So, he wants to play a game with us, the mayor thought to himself, because when the door to the kitchen opened and the parish secretary came in, he did smell a roast. The roast was here, but the greedy priest was probably hiding it out of shame. But, all right, he thought to himself, let's play along the game for now. And so the mayor and his Richard Zeche colleagues ate the pastor's small dinner. It was all gone within a minute. Well, then... Shall we stop this nonsense, dear priest, said the mayor. I know you have a roast. Dear mayor, I don't have a roast, so I can't serve you one, Everhard objected. Don't lie to us, roared the mayor in anger. You bought it under my nose today. My housekeeper can confirm that. Ashamed, the otherwise self-confident Everhard looked down. After a while he broke his silence. You're right, there is a roast, but it wasn't meant for me. And I was told not to tell anyone, but since you are so insistent, please follow me. The mayor now was so triumphant, he had finally caught Everhard. They entered another room, and the mayor froze. Although it was already night, and there were only a few small cans on the table, it was as if the sunlight was shining directly into the house, which could hardly be, it was night after all. And the smell... It was really strange. It smelled like lilac in here, but there were no lilacs to be seen for miles around. But the scene in the room was even stranger. Everyone could see twelve old men sitting at the table, silently eating the roast with some bread on the side. What's all this about? asked the mayor. Who are these people anyway? That's not important to you, dear mayor, Ivard replied. There are twelve old men I have as guests tonight. Twelve? asked the mayor. But I see thirty men sitting at this table. <gasps> when the mayor had said this, the rest of his words stuck in his throat, because he had realized only he could see the thirteenth person sitting in the middle of the table. He felt sick with shame. He merely fell to his knees and crossed himself and sang into silent prayer. Then the other man, who had left the thirteenth chair empty, realized, who had been sitting in their midst the whole time just for the mayor to see, then everyone else, including Everhard, of course, fell to their knees and praised God. That was the legend of the roast in the house of the priest of St. Jacob. I think it's a beautiful story, like a fairy tale by the brothers Grimm, so to speak, to teach us morals, namely not to be such an ad, um, I mean such a rude, uninvited guest like this, mayor.
As I said, with this second legend, it is difficult to go to the historical site today. Saint Jacob was demolished almost exactly 200 years ago. So if you are hoping to find a rose here today, you can simply go to the supermarket directly opposite. The former site of the parish church of Saint Jacob is now home to a street and the southern end of the White Markt Square, including the aforementioned Hermann Josef Fountain. This provides a nice bridge between the two legends. St. George's and the entrance portal, which once served as a connecting passage between the parish church and a monastery church, still exists. Why not take a look there? Another advantage, there are hardly ever tourists here, even though it is so close to the other tourists' hotspots. I hope you enjoyed this little fairy tale lesson. I certainly did. Because, I want to be honest, many episodes for this podcast take up a huge amount of time and research, which is not always really visible in the finished product. That's why I'm happy to be able to make some gentler episodes for you like this one, because even though sagas and legends are mostly fiction, they still have a small kernel of truth or message that has shaped and influenced people over the centuries, and thus also became a little bit of truth. Of course, I've known both legends since I was a child. Nevertheless, to be on the safe side, I took another look at Goswin Peter Gauss' Kölner Sagen, so Cologne Sagas, and Das Kölner Märchenbuch, or in English, the Cologne uh, Fairy Tale Book, by Jutta Echterhoff and Susanne Wiegener. I took the biography of the historically documented Hermann Josef from the LVR portal Rheinische Geschichte, or in English, Rhenish History, And the academic article on this was written by none other than Alois Döring, one of the greatest researchers of the Rhineland customs that ever existed, and who unfortunately died on November 7th, 2023, so just a few weeks before the publication of this episode, at the age of 74. If you want to know what the statue of the Virgin Mary in St. Mary, Mary in the Capital looks like, or see the Hermann Josef Fanden, or the splendor of the Steinfeld Monastery, I recommend my website, thehistoryofcologne.com. You can also subscribe, subscribe to the blog there and receive an email as soon as a new episode is published. Many thanks to Alex as our newest Patreon member. Thank you for your long-term support for this podcast. And this time thanks to Brigitte, Jürgen, Silvia, and again Jürgen for your tips via PayPal. I wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and a Happy New Year. A new year, not a dear. And in case you hear this later, just have a good start to the week. Recommend me further, rate this podcast, and auf Wiedersehen.